When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachring, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Economics. Today I'm speaking with Alan S. Blinder, Gordon S. Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University. We are discussing his recently published book, Monetary and Fiscal History of the United States, from 1961 to 2021. In the past few years, a number of Fed histories have been released by both practitioners and scholars. A Monetary and Fiscal History is an absolute must-read for anyone seeking to understand our current moment. Alan, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, this was a, just an absolutely fascinating book, and I think a really important book for, for today. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I'll be brief. Um, I'm an old guy. <laughs> I was but of came initially of age about when this book starts started. I mean, the book starts in 1961. I enrolled in college at Princeton, by the way, in 1963. So we call college freshmen adults, I think. So I was an adult for most of this uh, period. Um, I got my PhD in 1971 from MIT. I went to work on the Princeton faculty immediately thereafter, and here I am still a professor at Princeton, so I obviously haven't gotten anywhere in life. Uh, the, the other thing I should mention, since it's so germane to this book, is that uh, from 93 to 94, I was a member of President Bill Clinton's original Council of Economic Advisors. And from 1994 to 1996, I was the vice chair. There was only one then of the Federal Reserve. So at least in that window, I had a front row seat to both monetary and fiscal policy. And for most of the rest of the time, I sort of had a second row seat watching, knowing a lot of the people in those positions, sometimes communicating with them. So uh, a fair amount of this book comes from either first or second hand 
experience. The title of the book is a reference to the, the famous book by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz. Uh, but you have your own little spin on it. Uh, so why examine monetary and fiscal history together instead of just one or the other? Yeah, it's very important because one of the themes in this book uh, is the interaction or non-interaction, and it changed a lot over time between monetary and fiscal policy. Like, are they cooperating with each other? Are they in opposition to one another? Is each ignoring the, the other one? There are episodes in the sixth-year history uh, that form in each of those uh, baskets. The other thing I should mention is, well, two other things I should mention. Friedman and Schwartz were, of course, monetarists, and so they looked at everything through monetary glasses. Uh, that's okay as long as you have a second pair and can look through at the phenomena through other glasses as well. And to me, leaving out the fiscal part is a very big omission and leads you inevitably into a place I wasn't anxious to emphasize, but it leads you there, which is the political political events in the United States. And you just cannot discuss fiscal policy without discussing the political background, because fiscal decisions, unlike monetary decisions, are political decisions made by politicians. To start at the top in 1961, uh, and just the, the, the early to mid-60s, can you describe what the dominant fiscal and monetary views were of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations? Yeah, I would say that, um, I would say two things. First of all, it was Kennedy listening to his Council of Economic Advisors and learning from that. He was a good learner. Uh, that brought the Keynesian revolution to American policy, an emphasis on policy. Keynesian economics was being taught in universities for years before. Keynes' great book uh, was, after all, published in 1936, and we're talking about 1961. It, the policy had also been practiced in a number of European countries before. Sweden is comp uh, especially notable. But it was anathema to American politicians before Kennedy. So the Kennedy recommendation for a tax cut, a Keynesian tax cut, let's call it, in 1962 was a big break from history. It wouldn't have been a big break in Sweden. Swedes would have said, oh yeah, sure, we've done that before. Uh, but it was a very big break from history in America. And emblematic of that, it took more than two years to actually get Congress to it. Well, I should say it took more than two years, plus the assassination of Kennedy, who then was a kind of a martyr to this, to get that through Congress. You know, it's one of the things you can sort of chuckle about these days. You tell Congress, we'd like to cut taxes. They all jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, let's cut taxes. Uh, but in those days, that was not the case. And what was the main basis for opposition to tax cuts? Was it just good old-fashioned balanced budget thinking? Yeah, most of the deficits were evil, did all sorts of horrible things. Some of that kind of rhetoric you could still hear today. 
but it was the dominant strain in American uh, policy circles, uh, and even to some extent in academic circles, but much less, but completely dominant in policy circles then. Then in the late 60s through the 70s, inflation really starts to take off. Uh, could you discuss some of the, the causes of this inflation and what it did to the econo economic thinking of the day about uh, how to tame inflation? Well, let me start with one sentence on the latter, and then I'll give you a few paragraphs leading up to the latter. It really was very instrumental in the rise of monetarism as an intellectual doctrine and as a policy doctrine under, I would say, but not everybody agrees with this, the false premise that Keynesianism had caused all this recession and monetarism was the way to cure it. So now let me go back and answer the bigger part of the question. The Great Inflation, as it's been called, really began in a classic Keynesian manner with an excessive stimulus of aggregate demand to prosecute the Vietnam War, starting from a position of, from a position of full employment. It would have been a whole different thing if the, if the uh, gigantic splurge of military spending had come in an, in an economy that was loaded with unemployment and lots of unused resources that could be brought to bear uh, to make military equipment. But that was not the case. Uh, as Johnson escalated the uh, war in Vietnam, he was doing so with a fully employed economy. So basic, simple Keynesian economics that we teach in Economics 101, and by the way, that we taught in Economics 101 back then, I was a student then, uh, um, says you're going to get inflation from excess demand from that, and sure enough, we did. So that's, that was the first episode of the Great Inflation. We fought some of that by reversing tax cutting into tax raising in 1968, and also the Fed pitched in with tighter monetary policy, which enraged Linda Johnson at the time. Uh, Johnson, by the way, this is redolent to what Donald Trump did many years later, asked whether he could fire the chairman of the Fed. Uh, he couldn't, neither could Trump. But in any, in any case, he was very angry uh, with the Fed for doing that. It raised interest rates. It lowered inflation uh, a bit. and uh, But then it escalated again in the 70s, partly because, again, of overstimulus of the economy as Richard Nixon wanted to be sure he got reelected. Uh, and by the way, held the inflationary consequences down with wage price controls. The bigger part of it was the supply shocks that started buffeting the U.S. economy as early as 1972 with food. People forget about that. They tend to remember OPEC-1, which was late in 73, but we were having problems with food because of crop failures and a few other things in 72. So food and energy prices started soaring uh, in 70, uh, 
two, three, and into 74. Um, the 74 episode was exacerbated by the dismantling of the price controls that I mentioned before. If you've got a lid on a lot of prices and you take the lid off, they jump up. And that, uh, that registers as inflation. What led ultimately then to the development of monetarism? We mentioned right at the beginning uh, Milton Friedman, uh, but what led to the sort of popularity of monetarist thinking? And also, if you would just uh, sort of explain the key differences between monetarism and Keynesianism. So let's start with that. So monetarism, unlike Keynesianism, just emphasizes the money supply. That if you want to understand why why inflation is sometimes high and when inflation is sometimes low, you want to look at the growth rate of the money supply. And almost nothing else. That's a slight exaggeration. You get most of the... Milton Friedman famously said, um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So you can see what I just said is only a... It's not really an exaggeration of what Friedman said at all. That's, that's what he claimed. And the policy implication of that is if you want to get inflation down, you've got to slow down the growth rate of the money supply. The Keynesian view is that inflation can come from a number of sources, including excessive growth of the money supply. So we never would want to exclude that. Uh, but also from uh, excessive fiscal spending, as for the Vietnam War, and supply shocks, food and energy, especially as I mentioned a couple of moments ago. So it has a much more Catholic view of where inflation could come from and commensurate with that, a much more Catholic view of how you might fight inflation to it, including fiscal policy. Now, here's the rub. If you try to sell that to politicians, we should use fiscal contraction to fight inflation. They look at you like you came from Mars and you should go back because the voters don't like higher taxes and they don't like large spending cuts. So one of the things I knew but really realized uh, uh, with greater cogency in writing this book is the last time contractionary fiscal policy was used to fight inflation was 19, in the U.S. It is 1968. Think about it. That's what, 55 years ago? 1968. Now, there have been other fiscal contractions, but they were always motivated and justified by uh, the deficit was too large. We had to get the deficit down. Never by managing aggregate demand to try to fight Inflation, whereas in Keynesian theory, you've got the two weapons. You've got tighter fiscal policy or a tighter monetary policy to, uh, to fight inflation. Another episode that I found interesting uh, is you describe what the relationship was like between Richard Nixon and the Fed chair at the time, Arthur Burns. Uh, and I think that this is really interesting just looking at the this concept of, uh, of central bank independence. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk about their relationship and what the Fed was like during the Nixon administration. Well, yes, and it wasn't independent. So um, Nixon and Burns had been, uh, let's just say buddies, friends, uh, from the Eisenhower administration. Burns had been in the Eisenhower administration. Nixon, of course, was vice president. 
when he became president, Nixon, um, he had to wait until the term of the incumbent Fed chair, William Chesney Martin, ended, and then he installed Arthur Burns to uh, be chair of the Fed. Arthur Burns it was, um, to put it politely, excessively compliant to Richard Nixon's wishes. And Richard Nixon's biggest wish, as we all know from Watergate and before, was to get reelected in 1972. And even though there was still an inflation problem then, it wasn't a big problem, nothing like now. There was a small inflation problem still then. Nixon persuaded Burns to uh, lower interest rates, gin up the money supply growth rate, whichever way you want to put it, stimulate the economy. Nixon himself was then stimulating it in other ways, on the fiscal side, in ways that he could. For example, uh, a humongous increase in Social Security benefits and a few other things as well. Inspiration of the allegedly independent, but not in fact independent, Federal Reserve, both the fiscal and monetary engine were ginned up to make the economy grow faster. And if you do that, there's a recipe for adding to the inflation rate, which in fact happened. The 70s, then, is obviously at this time known for what's called stagflation. Yeah. What did stagflation end up doing to the perception of Keynesian policy uh, and then ultimately leading yeah. to a, uh, you know, we could call it a, a paradigm shift uh, of sorts? So let's start with what it should have done. Stagflation comes from adverse supply shocks. And the, the, the two that are historically relevant are food, what I mentioned already, food and energy. P.S., if you fast forward to 2022, Outside the realm of my book, we had supply shocks from other sources, bottlenecks caused by recovery from the pandemic. But nobody was, that wasn't happening in the 70s or 80s. The supply shocks were food and energy shocks. And those kinds of supplies, adverse supply shocks, tend to raise inflation, as I was saying a moment ago, but also to contract output. Just think about the energy part. Energy is an input to industrial processes and it gets more expensive. So A, that's inflationary, and B, it tends to reduce the outputs of the, the uh, things that use energy, which is everything, uh, just about. So uh, in the intellectual world, the, um, the monetarists basically, and successfully for a while, ignored the supply shocks and pinned the whole thing on Keynesian economics, that it was the Keynesian stimulus from excessively rapid money growth that caused these episodes of inflation. Now, remember what I said about Arthur Burns. There was some truth to that. Uh, it wasn't a completely nonsense idea, but many of the monitors took it very much to the extreme denying that supply shocks do anything and that the whole story was excessive money growth. And therefore, the way to cure the inflation was A, to jettison Keynesianism as a doctrine, and B, to slow down the growth rate of the money supply. 
which set the stage for Paul Volcker's change in Federal Reserve policy in 1979. Volcker followed Burns. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, Paul, Ver Paul Volcker uh, and, and his appointment by Jimmy Carter. You, you sort of describe in the book that Carter might have, I guess you could say, sealed his fate by appointing Volcker, though. Uh, the, yeah, so so how did that even happen? Like, what, what led Carter to appoint Volcker? And then what was, uh, yeah, if you could describe what Volcker's leadership was like. Sure. Inflation was problem number one on the economic front. There was also the hostages and all. But for the Carter administration, it was problem number one, inflation. The economy wasn't that sick or in recession or anything like that. It was inflation. And inflation got really very high uh, early in the Carter administration into double-digit uh, range. Uh, and Carter saw that this was happening, and he knew that the society had to do something to bring the inflation rate down. And he understood that it wasn't going to come from the fiscal side, that it was going to come from the Fed. And to make that happen, he needed to put in a man of steel, if you will um, accept the Superman analogy for Paul Volcker, uh, at the head of the Fed. Carter knew that Volcker was going to take a sledgehammer to inflation, and that was going to damage the real side of the economy, cause a recession, maybe more than one recession, turned out to be two recessions. Uh, and that, in turn, would likely uh, redound to the benefit of whoever ran against Carter in 1980, turned out to be Ronald Reagan. That is, we know Reagan won in a landslide. And we, we know from, car, from, auto, from biographies of Carter that he understood this. This was not a surprise. He said, you know, like, holy mackerel, I just put it in this guy to run the Fed, and look what he does. It was not a surprise. He knew something like that. No one could have forecast the details, but he knew that something like that was in the cards, and he knew that that was going to affect his political standing very adversely, um, which it did. So Volcker gets the reins of the Fed in, uh, I think it was August of August of 79. And I would say, not everyone agreed with the, but would agree with this, but I think most people agree with this. Adopted monetarist rhetoric as a political heat shield against the super high interest rates that he knew were coming. Right? It's not a mystery how the Federal Reserve conquers inflation. Jay Powell and the Fed are trying to do it right now, same way. High interest rates uh, impinges on economic activity that causes slack and the inflation rate falls. Not, not a mystery. Uh, and that's, of course, what Volcker was going to do. I'm not sure he knew that interest rates would go to 20%, but he knew they were going to go very, very high. And he adopted monetarism, re monetarist rhetoric, so he could say, um, it's the market that determines interest rates, not the Fed. What we're doing is making the money supply growth uh, more stable and lower, as the monetarists say we should. 
to uh, beat down inflation. And if you want to yell about uh, high interest rates, yell at the markets. That's where they come from. During Volcker's leadership, what did Reagan and his administration think about the actions that he was taking? Well, that's an excellent question. At first, they were quite supportive because part of the supply-side rhetoric was the belief, I would say the false belief, that you could separate real growth from inflation and you cut taxes to stimulate real growth and then you had tight money to fight inflation. Well, it doesn't really work that way because tight money fights real growth also. Uh, the Reagan team came, so at first they were very supportive of Volcker. He's doing the right thing. Then as uh, one recession occurred in 1980 with um, Carter still, let's see, yeah, with Carter still as president, and then a really serious one in 1982-3 with Reagan as president, the Reagan team got less enamored of Volcker and what he was doing with monetary policy. Uh, he was reappointed by Reagan. Uh, the chair of the Fed has a four-year term. So he was reappointed by Reagan in 83. When it came to 87, uh, Volcker was due for reappointment or not. Again, Reagan is still president. Um, I imagine there was some debate inside the Reagan administration. I'm sure there was. There was also a, about reappointing Volcker. There was also a debate inside Paul Volcker's head about whether he wanted another four years or whether eight years was enough. Uh, so I think there will be some mystery forever in the question of um, did he jump or was he pushed? My reading of the history, mildly, is it was a little more pushed than jumped. I don't think Volker, Volker didn't fight it that much because he was ambivalent. He was thinking it was time to go back to New York. Uh, but uh, the Reagan team, read by, led by Jim Baker, um, was anxious to push Volker out because he was getting in the way of stimulating the economy. Uh, the way the Republicans wanted to in advance of the 1988 election. So that wasn't going to be Reagan running again, but it was going to be Reagan's VP, George Bush. So he was pushed out, but I think not fighting it so much. This is a bit of a, of a side question, but... Did the monetarists view Volcker as one of their own, or did they see him as, uh, you know, sort of like you said, uh, maybe imposters, too strong a word, but think, a person using using the shield of, of monetarism? Yeah, I think more as imposters. They griped incessantly during the monetarist period. By the way, the monetarist period at the Fed only lasted under three years. But the monetarists griped incessantly that the money growth rate was not, in fact, constant. It was jumping all over the place. Now, most of us Keynesians predicted in 1979 that that would happen. And the reason is pretty simple economics, that if you have a thing for which the demand is jumping all over the place, and that was money at that time, and you stabilize the supply, or you try to stabilize the supply, you probably don't succeed. Because the quantity winds up jumping all over the place, and also the price. 
which is the interest rate. So in fact, in that monetarist period, both the interest rates were uh, very volatile. The monetarists didn't care about that. But the money growth rate was very volatile, and the monetarists did care about that. So after Volcker, uh, you know, obviously with Volcker, we see this, you know, major strengthening of the power, uh, you know, or, the, or at least the prominence of the, the Federal Reserve. Uh, you yeah. describe, uh, you know, his uh, sort of infamous Saturday, um, Saturday night uh, conference where he announced this the new policies. Uh, but after Volcker, you know, there's there's Greenspan. So uh, you know, Greenspan obviously was uh, was chair for a very long time. Yes. Uh, if you could sort of describe. Greenspan's views and how they differed from Volcker's, and then also just the kind of, uh, you know, the place of fiscal policy, uh, you know, in this period of, of Greenspan's leadership. Okay, so starting with the first, um, while Alan Greenspan, if he was here speaking, he's still alive, uh, and could speak for himself, but um, he would deny that he was a fine tuner, but he was. Um, Volcker's job was not very subtle, but required a tremendous will, willpower and strength, which Volcker had. He was going to clobber the economy until it's cried uncle and inflation went down. This man then inherited that. So he became chairman of the Fed with the inflation rate in the 4% range, three and a half, four numbers like that, not 12 or 14, which Volcker got as his inheritance. So Greenspan, um, let me say, talked a good game about inflation. Inflation is horrible. We hate it. We need to get rid of the remaining inflation. But he didn't really do anything much to do that. Uh, the truth of the matter is that the public was not up in arms about 3 to 4% inflation. Um, much of the Federal Open Market Committee, I sat on it for a while, was not up in arms about 3% inflation either. It drifted down from sort of the high threes to three. Uh, and when it came time to debate this inside the Federal Reserve, um, where Janet Yellen, and not incidentally, was a major debater, there was a consensus in the committee that uh, probably 2% inflation, not zero, was a good target for the Fed, A, and B, that there wasn't any great rush of getting from three to two. Now, if you listen to Greenspan's rhetoric outside the building, it was still, oh, zero inflation, zero inflation, but he wasn't doing anything to make that happen. What he was doing very skillfully is fine-tuning interest rate moves to either push the economy to grow faster or slow the economy down to meet, I'm going to call it, he wouldn't call it, the Keynesian ideal of sort of matching spending to potential output, matching demand to supply, so that demand for goods and services in the U.S. economy was growing right in line with supply. Uh, and unlike the Volcker period where people forget this, there were times in the Volcker period where the um, control band for the federal funds rate was four percentage points. 
Not four basis points, percentage points. When I was on the Fed during, uh, as part of the Greenspan period, the Federal Reserve was controlling the federal funds rate right to the basis point. The instruction from Washington would be, you know, make the federal funds rate 4.25%. And they didn't mean 4.2 or 3, 4.3. They meant 4.25. Uh, and the, uh, the tradition which we still sort of had of moving the Fed funds rate by 25 basis point increments, a quarter of a percentage point, that's small, uh, really dates of the Greenspan period. Uh, so he was a great, he was a great fine tutor. He had a tremendous uh, black spot on his record having to do with bank regulation which led us into the horrors of the financial crisis. But on monetary policy, he was, he was really terrific. So, yeah, moving from, uh, from Greenspan to Bernanke, uh, and then ultimately Bernanke's role in responding to the financial crisis that you, that you just mentioned, uh, how would you describe what policy was like under Bernanke, especially, of course, after the financial crisis. Right. So just a sentence on before. Bernanke came into the job. This man, Greenspan, uh, was a legend by then, had served at 18 and a half years. And here's this guy from the university, from Princeton University, showing up to take over from uh, Greenspan. So naturally, early Bernanke looked a lot like late Greenspan. He wasn't in there. He didn't come in there. It would have been foolish to say, that guy was terrible. I'm changing everything. No, nothing like that. It was all about continuity. Then the financial crisis hits. And forget about continuity. Uh, and the nation was lucky to have somebody as smart as Ben Bernanke, as flexible of mind as Ben Bernanke, and as knowledgeable about the Great Depression as Ben Bernanke, who had worked on that extensively as a scholar. And um, he just, so interest rate, the Fed had been using the short-term interest rate, the federal funds rate, as its instrument for a long time. He and I actually incidentally wrote a paper, pretty well-known paper on that. But he was also at Princeton, we were comics. What happened in... 2008, by the end of 2008, the Fed had reduced that to about zero. And so it could no longer try to boost the economy by cutting the short-term interest rates. And the, the choice for the Bernanke Fed was, do we give up and just tell everybody we've shot our water, we can't do anything? Or do we look for other weapons? And of course, he looked for other weapons. And so what we now call QE, quantitative easing, started then, what we now call forward guidance, uh, giving a lot of information about what you intend to do in the future, started then, and a few other lending programs and liquidity programs. It was a whole alphabet soup of liquidity and lending facilities uh, set up, uh, some of which were, you know, the Fed never liked to use the word, but some of which were bailouts of financial institutions, which in a moral sense certainly did not deserve balance. 
they deserve to go under. But in an economic, in a macroeconomic or even microeconomic sense, um, the Fed did not want to see these ships sink because they were not going to sink by themselves. They were going to drag a lot of other ships down with them. So the Bernanke Fed, um, starting in 2008, really late in 2007, but mostly in 2008 and nine, um, just threw the kitchen sink at this financial crisis and did everything they could think of. By the way, nobody was worried about monetarism. Nobody was paying any attention to the money growth rate. Uh, and nobody was paying much attention to the short-term interest rate because it was basically zero and sitting there. There was no action. You know, if you're looking for excitement about the Fed, looking at the federal funds rate stay at eight basis points forever wasn't very exciting. That was it. Fed was doing other stuff. So the, the short-term interest rates after that stayed at, at near zero uh, or zero for, for quite some time. Yes, uh, seven years. And then uh, I believe Yellen, once Yellen uh, takes over, she then starts to try and push it up a little bit. Yeah, um, gingerly, slowly, very little, yes. Uh, you know, do, do you think that um, that keeping interest rates at zero, obviously like, you know, during the recovery, if they started to push interest rates up, there could have been a, you know, concern, a worry about another, another recession. Um, but, you know, you know, not <laughs> hoping not to jump to the conversation, push the conversation too much in the present day as we're, as we're starting to, to get there in the, uh, the narrative. Um, but do you think that interest rates stayed at zero for maybe a little bit too long and that the, you know, <laughs> the, the firepower or that the tools were, were weakened, uh, by the time that the, the pandemic rolled around? Could be, but I, I wouldn't push that very much, and I'll tell you why. The recovery from the first of all, the Great Recession was long and deep. We got unemployment up to the ten percent range, which is extraordinary. It has only happened a few times in post-war U.S. history. And then, so there was, and there was a big fiscal stimulus early in the Obama administration. But after that, starting after the Republicans took the House in 2010, fiscal policy turned contractionary for three, four years in a row. And that's one reason I should have prefaced this by saying we had a very weak recovery. It took years and years to get back to full employment after that. That had not happened by the time Janet Yellen took over, not even close. Uh, and one of the reasons for that was that fiscal policy turned contractionary. All of a sudden, the uh, I'm going to sound political now because this is political. The Republicans in Congress decided that deficits were actually horrible. You know, when Reagan was pushing these big deficits, they were wonderful. Then they became horrible because the Democrat was in the White House. Well, wonderful or horrible, uh, if you... Um, cut spending, and it was mostly cutting spending, but the same would be true of raising taxes. It takes some steam out of the economy. And the, federal, and, and the Congress was taking steam out of the economy when it still needed steam. Ben Bernanke, in his closing years as chairman, was imploring the Congress constantly not to do that, uh, but they didn't listen. 
Same was true of Janet Yellen when she came in. She had an unemployment rate, if I remember correctly, at the beginning of her time as chair of about six and a half percent. Six and a half, not three and a half like we have now. So the economy was a long way from recovered. Uh, and she was, for that reason, justifiably worried that raising interest rates in that environment of slow growth and still high unemployment wasn't such a wonderful idea. And by the way, inflation was dead in the water. That's important. It would have been tougher for her, and maybe we'd be inclined to say she made a mistake if inflation was starting to zoom up at the time, but it wasn't. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about the, and, and you can also talk about it in a more general term too, but just the, the relationship um, between inflation and unemployment uh, and the, the sort of the perspective on uh, the validity of the Phillips curve. Um, and then also, you know, talking to bring that to the present day where things have changed a lot. Yep. Um, for decades, some version of a Phillips curve described the trade-off in the U.S. pretty well. It was never perfect. No, no, no relationship between two variables in economics is ever perfect. But it was pretty good in the sense that when the unemployment rate was high, inflation fell. When the unemployment rate was low, inflation rose. And uh, there was a number that I called the Brookings rule of thumb because a lot of it came from papers in the Brookings panel that indicated the magnitude of that uh, relationship. In wonky talk, the slope of the Phillips curve. Uh, as the uh, decade of the 90s ended and the decade of the 2000s started, now we didn't realize this till later, that relationship started to disappear. And if you look now at a scatter plot of data between changes in inflation and the level of the unemployment rate, that's the Phillips curve, basically. Uh, in, the, in the part of the 21st century that we've lived through, you're hard-pressed to see any relationship. So it just wasn't there. Um, why is a good question that is still gonna, that's going to be debated for a very long time. But what's not debatable is that what looked like a pretty reliable statistical Phillips curve in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s just disappeared in the 2000s, the 2010s, and the 2020s so far. Some people think it's making a comeback now, but we're not deeply into the 2020s enough to make a judgment on that. You know, the uh, the previous uh, president, President Trump, he, he came in and uh, he one of the first things that he did was he, he passed a, uh, a tax cut. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the logic, there, there was logic, behind doing a tax cut um, then and then just you know the relationship between trump and jerome powell uh and the tension that you sort of you you talked about you mentioned a little bit comparing trump and johnson yep i'll i'll start that again 
right there, comparing Trump and Johnson. The logic behind the tax cut of 2017 was purely political logic. The economy was in pretty good shape. It didn't need stimulus. Most of us thought then we were pretty much at full employment. Turned out we weren't, and we could go lower on the unemployment rate. But the, the uh, central belief among economists were we were pretty close to full employment in uh, 2017. But um, Republican ideology calls for a tax cut. P.S., a tax cut that favors the rich and corporations, but that's secondary. A tax cut whenever they can. So here's the new president, and he managed to push this tax cut through not motivated by macroeconomic considerations, just as Johnson. So a lot of us thought this is like Johnson in 65. He came in uh, with the Great Society and wartime spending and piled more demand on top of a fully employed economy, and we got inflation. A lot of us suspected that that would happen after the Trump tax cut, but it didn't. This goes back to your previous question, what happened to the Phillips curve? It worked in the 60s, the way you would think. It did not work in the 2010s, the way you might uh, think. Now, Trump and Powell, while he was campaigning for president, Trump fulminated against Fed Chair Janet Yellen for being too loose with monetary policy, he said, to try to help Hillary Clinton get elected. That, of course, was not Janet Yellen's reason. Uh, then he becomes president, and then he starts fulminating against the Fed for not cutting interest rates enough. Because now he's the president. He's going to benefit from the uh, lower interest rates. Um, when it came time to decide whether to reappoint Janet Yellen, a Democrat, um, or someone else, presumably a Republican, and Jay Powell was a Republican at the time. I don't know that he still is. The Republican Party looks a lot different than it did six years ago. Uh, but in any case, he was definitely a Republican then. He had worked in the George W. Bush, not George W., George H.W. Bush administration. Um, so Trump decided to put his own man in as chairman, a Republican. Uh, but I think what he didn't understand is that the Fed is a highly independent technocratic agency, and the Powell view of what the Fed should be doing didn't from the Yellen view of what the Fed should be doing. So the screaming about Janet Yellen messing things up started to be screaming about Jay Powell messing things up at a time when he wasn't. Now, you could argue that later on, Powell should have been raising interest rates sooner than he did. And Powell himself admits that. But we're talking about uh, earlier than that. Right, pre-COVID. -pre Pre-COVID, when Powell was basically following the same monetary policy as Yellen, which is gingerly, slowly, and watchfully nudging up interest rates. That's what Yellen had been doing, and that's what he continued uh, to do. But that did not make President Trump happy.
to say the least. And like Lyndon Johnson, he inquired whether he couldn't fire Powell. He got the same answer. So once the uh, the pandemic reached the United States uh, and there was you know extreme panicking, the stock market I think fell ten percent, ten or fifteen percent in a day, um, and businesses were were, were shutting down. Yep. Uh, the the Federal Reserve started to take uh, some some extreme actions. Uh, so yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about the actions that they took, and then you know you could even bring it then now into just the present day. Uh, issues that the that the Fed and the, the the U.S. economy is facing. Right. So uh, let me draw. All right. So let me start with this. First of all, they dropped interest rates to the floor, just as Bernanke had done in two thousand eight. That was fast, really fast. Uh, they didn't have that much to go because interest rates weren't that high. They dropped them right to the floor. Secondly, they brought back most of the alphabet soup of liquidity and lending facilities that the Bernanke Fed had employed in fighting the great financial crisis. Thirdly, they went very big for QE again, quantitative easing, and forward guidance, telling everybody that was paying attention, our interest rates are on the floor, we're going to keep them on the floor until the economy looks a lot better than it does. That was not their wording, but that was the message. In addition to that, the Fed either initiated or was goaded by the Treasury into different lending and liquidity facilities that it had never done before, such as one was called the Main Street Main Street Lending Program. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a terrible idea, not because Main Street didn't need help, but because the Fed was not the right agency to do this. Um, uh, and it never went very far. There was another one about lending to municipalities, which didn't go very far. Uh, there was a third one about the Fed backstopping the banks so that the banks could participate in the PPP program. Now, if you remember the PPP pay. Paycheck Protection Program. These were, quote, loans that were not expected to be paid back. Well, that's a pretty unusual thing for banks or the Fed to get involved in. Uh, maybe it made sense to do that, but um, getting the, tr the Fed involved in things like that was a little bit strange. But the Powell Fed was very uh, cooperative. If I could draw another analogy, it was like the Fed in 1941, too. Uh, we were fighting a war then, and the Fed needed to keep interest rates on the floor, and it did. We'll worry about the consequences later. So fighting the pandemic war, the Fed did all these things uh, uh, and worried about the consequences later. Turned out to be a little too much later that the Fed probably, with the wisdom of hindsight, should have been starting to raise interest rates and reducing these other uh, special liquidity and lending facilities sooner than they did. Uh, and this time, unlike in the Bernanke episode, all that, let's call it money creation for lack of a better 
term credit creation, money creation, low interest rates, uh, led to a surge of inflation, helped along, however, and when I say helped, I think these helpers I'm about to mention were most of the story, actually. So don't think this was the last couple of percentage points of inflation. This was the bulk of it. Helped along by um, supply constraints that I mentioned before as we tried to get out of the pandemic. Food shock coming from the war in Ukraine and energy shock coming partly from the war in Ukraine, not only that. So those were familiar. We know what food and energy shocks do or supply shocks in general. They tend to restrain the growth of the economy and cause a lot of inflation. And that happened. But on top of that, the Fed was, by its own admission and by consensus among economists, uh, too loose for too long, contributing to inflation. Looking now at the the present moment, obviously your, your book uh, stops at, at 2021. Uh, a lot has happened since, obviously, the, you know, there's, there's always, always so much going on. But really in the past year, there's been, there's been a lot of shifts. Um, you know, is there any way that you're thinking about what you're seeing today on the, in the news and with Fed policy raising interest rates, uh, any way that you would sort of uh, recommend that listeners might think about what they're seeing? Well, I think a couple of things. Um, the first is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What I mean by that in this case is the Fed did make a mistake with keeping monetary policy too loose for too long. And some people are starting to use that as an excuse to threaten or curtail the independence of the Fed. I don't think that will succeed, but the, the main message is it shouldn't succeed. An independent central bank has served us well for many, many decades. Doesn't mean the Fed never made a mistake. It has made mistakes, and it just did make a mistake. But it's rectifying that mistake, and inflation is coming down. And I, I'm just, I would just be horrified to imagine that it, what would be going on if the House of Representatives was banking monetary policy instead of the Fed. So we don't want to go anywhere near that uh, uh, place. Um, second thing is fiscal policy and the national debt ceiling. The Republicans, as you know, are going are already threatening and will continue to threaten horrible consequences up to and including a political default on the U.S. national debt in order to get large increases in spending. And by the way, it's largely spending on the social safety net. First of all, if they succeed in getting tremendous cuts in spending, that's going to crimp growth at the same time that the Fed is crimping growth for the same reason that Volcker did way back when, to get inflation down. And that's a bit of a dangerous recipe if you want the economy to keep on growing and producing jobs. And secondly, there is the danger that the impasse is not broken and the Republicans in the House or the Senate, but it's presumably in the House, force the default, force the U.S. Treasury to default on its debt. 
which could bring a could bring about a worldwide financial crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. Now we don't know what would happen. This, there's no precedent for this. So I've heard some people speak with more surety than they should about this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. My fear is nobody knows what will happen. We know it won't be good. And that's, um, that's something to worry about. That's fiscal policy being carried to really pernicious levels due to politics. The future will be <laughs> undoubtedly filled with uh, catastrophes and crises, but let's hope that, that we don't see them uh, for, for, for some time. Uh, well, uh, well, Alan, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, the the book, uh, Monetary and Fiscal History of the United States from 1961 to 2021 is from Princeton University Press site. I recommend people go out and, uh, and purchase the book uh, and give it a read. Thank you. I recommend that too. I've been a bit of a temple, they're doing it.